Hey everybody, I want to talk about a product and platform that I absolutely love and our latest sponsor, Interseller, the prospecting and outreach platform of choice for recruiters and sellers. Whether you're doubling down on business development or recruiting talent, Interseller does all the heavy lifting of finding contact data, automating the email and follow-up process, and syncs all that rich data into 20-plus CRM and ATS platforms. Reach out now and get going on a two-week free trial and let them know you heard about it from Adam on the podcast today. Check out the link on the website. Appreciate it. Welcome to the podcast, where we introduce you to incredible humans who share their journeys with the mission to inspire you to harness your own inner tenacity to drive your life and career forward. And now, your host, Adam Posner. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast where I bring you the best and the brightest in the world of business, marketing, and entrepreneurship to help you harness your own inner tenacity and drive your career forward. My guest today on the podcast is Jesse Darris, founder of the brand consultancy Darris. Good name there. We'll talk about that in a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) And Darris is a PR agency that's been behind tons of ultra successful direct-to-consumer brands that have transformed entire categories, including Warby Parker, Harry's, Everlane, Reformation, Glossier, Hymns, Hudson Yards, and Oscar, which I'm sure if you've taken the New York City subway, you have seen ads for about all of these. He's also the founder and managing member of Amity Supply, which invests and supports early stage consumer brands. And we're going to unpack that in a little bit. And prior to founding Darius, Jesse climbed his way to the top at Sunshine Sachs, another premier PR agency that works with tons of businesses, entertainers, and politicians. And Jesse knows PR from A to Z and has contributed to the formation and success of countless great brands of our time. And I'm excited to dig into his branding and PR background and storytelling expertise. So let's do this. And I'm stopped talking right now. Jesse, <laughs> welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm pumped to be here. Well, I'm, I'm excited to, to have you here. And, and before I hit the rewind button, mm-hmm. I was trying to think of a good place to start with this show. And it's kind of always interesting as a, as a podcast host, because I try to switch it up a bit. You know, there, there is a, a formula to my show, but I'm going to do this one a little bit different. And I'm going to start how I was introduced to you through our common friend and your close friend and, and mentor and someone who's really, let's just say it, he's, he's helped change the direction of your life, uh, Mr. Matt Higgins and his new book, Burn the Boat. So I'm going to read a, a quick little yep. excerpt here <clears throat> and put on my reading voice as I read to my kids. Let's see where I want to start. Um, Jesse was the best public relations professional I have ever worked with. The rare genius who had no problem speaking the raw and unvarnished truth to CEOs, politicians twice his age. Okay, that's a pretty bold statement there. But the, <laughs> but the one the one that really got me here, I recognized something unbelievable spe- unbelievably special in Jesse. He could forecast human behavior in a way that made you feel a little bit violated, challenging the very notion that we are free-thinking human beings. When you first read that excerpt from Matt Higgins, tell me how you felt. I felt honored because that's sort of how I feel about Matt. Matt is extraordinarily talented when it comes to understanding human behavior. Um, you know, I think one of the things that separates um, that separates people is the ability to be a second and third tier thinker um, is, and to define that, like the, the ability actually um, people will say it's about seeing around corners, but it's, it's about being able to think through the way a decision might impact the next decision, might impact the next decision, might impact the next decision. So chess over checkers. Yeah, and have the forethought to actually think through things and uh, and to behave with intention as opposed to behave with reaction. Um, so I also think just on the other side, and this translates to brands, and it starts in politics and my career and is, is sort of a linear thread all the way through in, involving the crisis stuff I've done and all this other stuff is I think people don't do a good enough job trusting their gut with how something might land. I think most of us have an internal dialogue going on and a narrator that's internal. Um, and that narrator can often tell you how something might turn out. Um, it might be really quiet. Like the volume might be really turned down on it. It might just be like a little voice being like, I think this is going to land poorly, that type of thing. But I think people do a really poor job being able to identify um, what that emotion is saying, um, and then to be able to name it and explain it. Um, and so I think that's all he's talking about. Like I, I, you know, I developed a lot of reps working in a lot of different scenarios and a lot of different industries, kind of seeing the way people would react to different things, um, uh, and getting a little bit better at guessing each time. And that's called pattern recognition, 
right? I mean, I think that's what Matt talks a lot about yeah. in, in his book. And, and we're done talking about Matt here. But you know what? I'm not done talking about Matt. I do want to close <laughs> this, this first little part of what is, what is, what is, the, what is the greatest thing that you've learned from your time with Matt? Oh man. I mean, the guy's extraordinary. I honestly, it's not from Matt, but about that interaction, just depending on who's listening. Matt was a relationship that I made through my first boss, through my first boss in New York, Ken Sunshine. Um, Matt hired Ken um, and Ken assigned the me Jets, to the right? account. Yeah. And, and Kenny assigned me to the account. Um, and it was this tiny, small remit. I think originally I was supposed to help them get like celebrities to go to the Jets game. So and all he exactly ended up with was Gary Vaynerchuk. That's all he ended exactly. up with. Exactly. Yeah, this little, little guy dude. from a wine shop. Yeah. This wine shop from Jersey guy. Look, look at him now. <laughs> That's when I met Gary. Yeah. And the, um, and the weird thing is that as Matt started to understand my skill set, the remit got bigger. Um, and I ended up helping the team with a lot of crisis issues. I ended up helping Mr. Johnson and his family with other issues. Um, and, uh, uh, and when time came that, um, that relationship obviously led directly to Darius. And so it was this thing you would have never thought this was the most important kind of business thing that would have happened to you. But, um, it happened when I was 25 and it was random and, you know, it's just, that is the most important thing here to me lesson wise. So, so going back to what you said before that people really don't listen and, and trust their gut. Did you have that feeling at the age of 25 in your gut that this guy, this, this Matt Higgins character who came into your life was, was yeah. going to help, you know, steered in the, in the direction it is now? Like, did you feel like, Hey, I, listen, maybe I should, maybe I should listen and trust and, and what he's saying. I think, I mean, he was like 30. He wasn't that know, much older. Or 31. And he had already been. You know, he had a law degree. He had been the press secretary, the youngest press secretary in the history of New York City. Right. Um, he was with it. Rudy on 9-11 and after. He had been the COO or the president of Lower Manhattan Development. And then Woody had tapped him to run the Jets. So yeah, I, I, I mean, I knew, I knew the guy was talented. It's like there's a lot of validation there from multiple parties. Um, and then you get to work around him. And it's, it's a rare thing where somebody has that kind of business acumen and knowledge, but then also comes from a world of like human behavior and understanding. And then also the tactical part of actually having to put this stuff into operation um, through comms and through marketing. Like that is a super odd skill set. Um, and it remains a super odd skill set. And you, I, I couldn't have verbalized it back then, but I knew the guy was obviously special. It's, it's, those, it's those Swiss Army knives. So we're, now we're actually done yeah. talking about Matt. And I want to get back to your early career. Um, and I love what I love about your story is the way you were calling and describe the early phase of your career as meandering. And when I heard that, I kind of thought about it myself, too, how I went through different phases and, you know, I went agency yeah. side and, and back and forth a little bit. And I think, you know, many people kind of think of that as, you know, should I be in this position? Should I have a linear career? When you look back on those early days, like meandering, what, what, what does that mean? Let's unpack that a little bit. Yeah, I. So I think young folks um, are, are told way too often that their career should be linear. They go and they talk with successful people, and those successful people tell them about these weird paths um, that their their that their uh, career took, um, and then say a version of, "But don't do what I did. Like like go and like do this other linear do path." As I say that, I do. Yeah, and it's wrong. It's it's just straight up wrong. I mean, I I always thought of my twenties as a like the the time to figure out what I was good at, um, and to get as good as it as good at it as possible. And then my thirties were about figuring out how to monetize it. And so in my mind, I had eight to ten years to kind of find product market fit for my for my skill set, um, uh, and to learn as much as I possibly could before I took a chance. Um, that was how I thought about it always. So let's talk about it. You 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 graduated degree in poli sci and business. How'd you get involved with the John Kerry campaign? Let's talk let's talk about that because that's that's interesting to be young and you're in the mix of a political campaign and like this is still yeah. before camera phones really right like we're still in the early days. It's still analog. Yeah. yeah, it was a crazy. I mean, so I had a I had my first job out of college was for um, a small consultancy um, uh, called Rabinowitz Dorf down in D.C. Um, I met one of my lifelong friends. There was a five person company. Spent a year and a half there. Went to go work for Howard Dean, actually, in the primaries. Um, and then... That guy's great. <laughs> talked my way into a job on, on, uh, on, on the Kerry Edwards campaign. It was, it was just Sean Kerry at the time. Um, and they, I think there were 14 battleground states that year. 
Um, they put me in Maine, which was the smallest one. I was, I think I was 23, almost 24. Um, I worked with this guy named Jesse Connolly up there who ran the state. And my job was to be the communications director in the state. Um, and so you meet all of the, like you're spending time with the governor and the senators and like all of this stuff. And you end up as a kid with a staff. I had six or seven people working for me at 23 or 24 Crazy. with big principals coming in and like you spending time with them, you know, Madeline Albright and Robert Reich. And when John Edwards it's heavy came hitters. up and it was crazy. And, uh, and, and then also um, uh, getting used to doing live radio hits, live television hits, obviously speaking on the record with reporters all day long. I mean, it is like, it is the deep end. I mean, it is wild. So what was, what was expectation versus reality in that stage? I had no idea what to expect. I, I was so naive. I would have been terrified if I had known what I was getting myself into. Um, Cause you're in a place where you basically know nobody. Um, I was living on a futon, right. In a, in a studio in Portland, Maine. Um, I was there for six months, just like meeting people. Um, and I was also learning every single day. I mean, the, the cool part about it was like the people I reported up into were in DC or in Boston. Um, and I was, you know, it's a seven day a week job. And so you're doing these calls with them in the morning and at night, and you're getting directions on what you should be doing and how you should be thinking about the week. And they're setting thematics and the people are incredible. I mean, like, you know, it's like you run through the people. Um, and like, I, I think back to some of the names, um, but like mm-hmm. Jen Psaki was on one of these the are people in history. Had, these are historical yeah. figures. They have yeah, their now, portraits up. They have their portraits up in certain places, right? Like, so yeah. what's it like as a, as a young, like, well, let me spin it this way. Cause I think there's a great moment to give some advice to folks young folks in their career who are thrown into the mix and they're like with like celebrities, A-list politicians, like how do you not get starstruck? How do you, how do you level up so you're able to be in the right state of mind and have your voice heard in that conversation? You need to stop caring right away. What do you mean? Like you need to stop caring about failing. If you're thinking about failing, you're just never going to succeed. Um, like I, I think part of what Matt was talking about in the thing about me was that I never really, I always said what I thought. I thought that the reason I was in that room was because I was smart enough to be there. And I trusted myself and my instincts to be able to say what I thought from a young age. And I, so I think ne- it's important. So you never had imposter syndrome, so to speak. You I, everybody to has be imposter syndrome. <laughs> it's like, you don't, you don't like. I, 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 yes and no. You know, you, I still don't feel like, like I'm successful. Maybe that's a different way to think about it. But like, um, uh, but no, in the sense of like being in a room and being on that stage and like, and like having something to say, no, I never, I never felt like I shouldn't have been there. Well, let's, let's take a, let's take a left turn here. How, how do you, how do you define Well, how did you define success at 25 versus where you are now in life? Like, has that definition oh, changed? Yeah. I'm like way beyond where I ever thought I'd get. Um, so I, uh, trust me, this is there's some psychosis here, and I totally understand that. Oh, I think we, the, could, we could we could go uh, wherever you want, man. It's Friday. <laughs> I, I, I think the um, uh, I think people who are wired like I assume you are, like I am, like I know Matt is, um, you have an ability to kind of you know uh, kind of move the needle as much as you need to to keep yourself motivated. Um, and, and there's always another rung. I think there's a, a really fine balance there between like driving yourself insane and staying motivated. Uh, but no, when I was a 22-year-old kid, I, I would have loved to have been the press secretary to the president of the United States. Like I was always ambitious, but I wasn't one of those kids who grew up kind of wanting to start a company. Like the, the word entrepreneur, like was it in the lexicon when I was? No, in it wasn't. No, I mean no. I'm I'm 44. I don't know how old you are, but like that 42. wasn't in the yeah. right. That wasn't in the we right. We we knew about business and like self starters, and it was the early you heard about like Steve Jobs and and yeah, you know the all those type of folks, but. I got to ask you, like, I don't know how much you could share, but you definitely were in a couple of rooms. Maybe you shouldn't be in like, it has to be some oh, good yeah. cocktail party stories, man. Let's leave some names. I mean, give me, give me something good here. Give the audience a good one. I have a, I have a, did book you get in thrown into a broom point. closet somewhere with somebody you shouldn't have been? Come on. There has to be some of that good stuff. I, before I you had were married. Some, <laughs> I had some insane stuff. Yeah. I, 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 not to speak out of turn. Um, I mean, just a few highlights. I was the press secretary for the and the spokesman for the transit union when it went on strike in New York City when I was 25. And oh, it was man. the biggest story in the United States for like four or five days. Near yes, it was shut down. Subways were. Yeah. Um, we helped um, and Sunshine was hired by the Jackson family when Michael passed away. And we put together kind of all of the structure um, and the media stuff for the funeral um, out at the Staples Center. Oof. That was, a, 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 you know, a tough, a tough and heavy situation. Um, you know, I was 
kind of in the room very early as like Warby Parker was being put together, you know, before it had a name and the guys were whiteboarding. Um, it's a, there's like a crazy, um, you know, it's, it's been a, it's been a super, super interesting ride. It's, it's a little bit fate. So let's, let's talk about that. Um, I want to talk about Ken, Ken Sunshine and, and yeah. what he taught you about the art and science of public relations, because I think people hear about marketing. It's one of those things like, well, I'm in marketing. Okay. What the hell do you do? And I always say like, how do you explain it to your parents? So Jesse, how do you explain to your parents what you do for a living? It's uh, the easiest way to say care. it, right? Like the lowest yeah. common denominator. Yeah. Unless, unless your mom and dad are in PR, right? Like, like my parents are both New York City Board of Education teachers. I yeah. literally have to mansplain to my parents, what is Web3? What are NFTs? What is recruiting? I remember when I switched into recruiting, I broke it down. I go, I help people get jobs and the companies pay me to do that. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> trust me. My mom's a teacher and my dad sold textiles for a living. Like, you know, they <laughs> did not understand, you know, they wanted me to be a lawyer. Uh, but the... Uh, uh, what do I do? I, I help people um, uh, uh, understand that they want things they didn't know they wanted. Um, uh, you know, uh, that's basically it when it comes down to be it. Be a storytelling. Um, yeah, storytelling is like the, I, I think, a super overused way of thinking about it. But yeah, it's, you know, it's in short, it's it's uh, every single purchase that we make, whether it's a literal purchase or a metaphorical purchase with our time, um, uh, we have made a conscious decision to choose it. Generally speaking, um, there was an emotion that was triggered that allowed us to make that decision. Um, and I think what we're really good at is identifying and triggering that emotion repetitively. So how is public relations different than marketing? I think it's all the same stuff now. Um, I think if anything, and I, I think this is true of Gary's work, and um, I, I think the, the, the pyramid inverted, right? We grew up in a world where the like the like halo of brand marketers like the the gods of brand marketing talk to us talk down from mount olympus right <laughs> um and so you know i was thinking about this the other day like you remember the slogans when you were a kid right you remember you know obviously be like mike and bo knows um but you remember like do you remember tony the tiger what like what he They're said great yeah He's, yeah i mean do you, like it's we grew up sloganized that it was embedded so, into our brains it was beaten over our yeah. heads you know, Apple was think different. You know, you'd run through them. Think about a slogan that's caught in the last 10 years. Like, is there a slogan that you can think? Like, it's like, it's over, right? We Good. moved from like a, a totally sloganized world into this inverted pyramid where it's the masses telling the brands what to think and vice versa. Or um, celebrity conversation. And songs. Well, it's a conversation. And it's the point. It's a conversation as opposed mm -hmm. to them talking at us. Um, and I do think that people who grew up with our mindset, which is, you want to get people to click on something, whether literally or figuratively, um, and you want to get them to do it without having to pay them to do it, generally speaking. And I'm talking about customers um, directly. Um, like th that mindset is extraordinarily helpful. So speaking of mindset, let's talk about Ken Sunshine for a little bit. Somebody who yeah. is a legend, absolute legend. I mean, his his roots too are in, in politics. I think he worked with yeah. um, with George McGovern running, he's running for president and, and oh, yeah. young Dinkins. Bill de Blasio. The, the, yeah. The golden mayor of, <laughs> we'll, we'll leave it at that. But yeah. you know, early in your career, I mean, you were, you were, you know, hot, young, you know, you were crushing it. Like, what did, what did you learn from that time with Ken and had that help really put you on the right trajectory in your career? Well, I was sort of the opposite is the truth. Okay. Right. So I'd gotten out of the Kerry campaign and I thought I was hot shit. Right. And, um, and I proceeded to try to get a job down in New York because I didn't want to go back to D.C. Um, and I couldn't get hired. I spent five months living on friends' couches and what Kenny eventually took a, uh, I had a reputation for being a like a shithead. Like, you know, <laughs> we have I, something in common. Yes. You know, you, you, you it's, you know, a, like a Napoleonic complex. You're given a bunch of power when you're 23, 24 and you're told mm. how great you are and, and you, you, you build yourself up in that way. And when you grow up in politics, like there's a lot of screaming like that, that is kind of how people manage. So I, Kenny took a chance on me and I, they pulled me aside. Kenny and Sean Sachs um, pulled me aside like within the first couple of weeks and told me that that was why I was having a hard time getting a job. They like told me what, what the word was um, and they were honest with me. And the, the first time I slipped up, I, I think I yelled at an assistant early on for screwing up. The first thing Kenny taught me and probably the most important is you can be a nice human being and still be successful. Um, you don't have to be uh, a dick. And, yeah. And the guy is a, is a, is a, is a really nice guy. I, so uh, yeah, that was one. I, the, the second, um, 
was that all of this was the same. So it confirmed for me that like the stuff that I learned in politics was not only transferable, but preferably transferable in the private sector. Um, uh, and, and that it, and that it had an application to basically everything else that was out there in the world. And it was this amazing ability to kind of watch him and kind of translate what I had learned up to that point, learn a ton from him and then translate it into the private stuff. Like that was the, the connective thing that really kind of blew my world up. And what about leadership? What did you learn from these guys? Oh man, I, you know, they put me in such crazy positions at such a young age. Um, that like for me, it developed this mentality in me that like the right way to train people is to let them sink or swim. Um, and if they sink a little, let them swim again. Like, you know, that you're going to screw up, but that if you're a smart kid, like you'll figure it out. Um, uh, and so That's I, the upskill. I, you know, yeah. And from a management perspective, it was just like, I, I got there when it was six or seven people, or maybe I was the eighth person or something. And so it was, it had a big reputation, but it was still a pretty small business. Um, and I, you know, I just got to do everything. It was incredible. So you were there, correct me. I think in five or six years, what was, what longer. was that? Yeah. You know, Almost. Longer than that. So what yeah. was, I'm going to go back. Chris, Chris Mueller, my, um, producer and researcher, we're going to have to fact check that one. Um, <laughs> what was that calling for the next step? I mean, did you, did, were you planning to yeah. leave? Did you want to leave? Did you have a vision of what was next? No, I, uh, I didn't. <laughs> Um, I, it was, uh, you know, I was doing mostly crisis work and I got a call from a friend of a friend, Neil Blumenthal in the fall of 2008. Um, he had just started at Wharton, um, uh, with some friends and, and asked me for some advice. I, I knew Neil cause we had grown up together, like, and, and, and I had mutual friends. I didn't realize he, I think he had called like a hundred people. Um, but he kept calling. It would happen once in a while. Um, and I survived what I've now later understood was like a culling of the herd down to like people who remained helpful um, through multiple conversations. Uh, I ended up spending time with the guys and I helped, you know, I, I, I helped them get Warby off the ground in 2010. Um, and I was still spending so much of my time on crisis work. Um, but by 2012, I thought there was going to be a pretty like clear revolution um, in terms of the way brands were marketed. Um, Warby was really my only consumer brand uh, up until that point, aside from a little business called Craftsy, which was also pretty great. But uh, um, uh, but I wanted to set up a system where you could combine consumer and enterprise press. Like that was the first idea. Uh, there was an agency on the West coast called outcast that I aspired, um, to be, they had built a version of that on the West coast. And I thought there would be an explosion of brands created that were directly marketed on the internet. Um, I thought it was odd that a company like Warby had to hire somebody who understood like fashion and accessories and consumer, and then somebody else who understood maybe ESG or social responsibility, um, enterprise storytelling, tech press. And I thought if you could combine those two things into one agency, you could charge um, more than either of the individual agencies, but less than they cost in aggregate. Um, and that was it. That was the white space. Hey there, fellow podcast listeners. I'm Kevin Logan Jr., host of the Immutable Mindset Podcast. If you're fascinated by Web3, blockchain, and disruptive technology, then you won't want to miss a show. Join me and co-host Adam Posner as we introduce you to an incredible lineup of successful entrepreneurs, builders, and industry veterans who share their insider knowledge, unique perspectives, and personal stories that will leave you inspired and craving more. Like Mike Isogawa, the CEO of Webacy, who shares her journey from being a Cirque du Soleil performer to a cybersecurity pioneer. Or Dave Schwed, COO of Halborn, who discusses the future of digital asset security and how the future of assets will be tokenized. We also break down complex topics into digestible bits, perfect for both experts and newcomers to the world of Web3. So if you're ready to stay ahead of the curve, subscribe to the Immutable Mindset Podcast now, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. So let's let's talk about Warby Parker for a moment there. I mean, this was, I mean, they were pioneers in the direct-to-consumer space there. What were those early conversations about? Do you really, like, they were so confident, like, and you tell me because you were inside the room there, like the, the thesis that consumers are want to buy glasses, right, prescription and sunglasses from home, from the comfort of their home without leaving their house, but without trying them on, maybe try them on, wait for them to come, ship them back. Like, what were those early conversations like to be a fly on the wall in that room? I was, so first of all, I didn't think it was going to work. I think I should say that out loud because it's worth mentioning now. I think and it's like, okay I to say that around. now. You've been, pr you've been yeah. proven wrong. Right. Okay, good. You I, can say that. I would joke around with Neil, <laughs> but it was, it was paradigm shifting. The idea that people would buy a physical good that required trying on in a store. Um, but the guys were so thoughtful. I mean, 
you know, and Neil and Dave are obviously the founders that are out there now, but Jeff Rader was in that room. Andy Hunt was in that room. Um, and they were super, super thoughtful about every step of the consumer like purchasing process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, all the home try on stuff and everything else. They just spent the time and thought through the entire customer experience. And it's still so central to the business, um, but they created, and I do think it's one of the things that is the defining feature of most of these brands. They created a truly delightful customer experience. Um, And they spent the time. Yeah. They spent the time. They had good, they had good advisors and, and professors who understood it. Um, uh, uh, at school, um, and they spent the time and the pain to like learn what it meant, and they adapted really quickly. Like, you know, the first people talk about Pivoting. direct consumer, but like, it's not even that. Like, they 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 were always a like a like a retail brand, and so I remember, you know, Neil was living. Can't even remember if he he and Rachel were married yet, but they were they were living in an apartment down there, I believe, on Walnut Street. Um, and, uh, um, and the, when they first started marketing the business and they, they first started to go out, some people in Philly were like, Hey, I'd like to see the glasses. And so the first store was Neil's apartment. Um, (laughs) and it was like, right after they opened, they started to understand that they actually needed a physical component to the business. And so from that point forward, like even when they opened their first office, which was near Union Square in New York, they Mm -hmm. had a showroom in there. They've had stores since their first day. Interesting. Um, So they thought they were going to be straight direct to consumer, but the brick and mortar well, let me, I mean, listen, this is now your, your, your bread and butter with these direct to consumer bands. I mean, what are some of those core foundational lessons? Again, you know, going back to the Warby Parker that apply now, you look at hymns, you look at some of these really other successful yeah. direct to consumer. And, and, and I think I'm going to know the answer there. It's a customer experience, right? Cause what do they sell? Yeah. Hymns is selling, they rebranded, you know, Viagra and, and dick pills and other things and hair loss and all these things that men don't really are maybe embarrassed or ashamed to, but they put it in a way that's accessible and easy and the yeah. consumer experience of the, not having the shame to make this purchase, right? Like they, they listen. And it, those guys have made it look easy. I mean, Andrew Judum is a, is an amazing operator. Um, like that's the first thing he had, the, the business had come out of a, um, an incubator in San Francisco called atomic. And Andrew was one of the partners there. We saw the business really early. Um, but, but yeah, he's incredible. And it's just worth saying because now he's a public company CEO. Um, but I would say to your point, I call them customer experience brands. That's what I actually think they are. Um, and I think they have five components to them. Uh, the first is they have positioning that's, that's a short, positive, highly repeatable. Um, like they know exactly why they exist and it's real. The second is they understand how to tell stories, both about their product and about their reason for being that ladder up to that positioning. Um, the third is, they um, understand which channels owned, paid, earned um, that work for them. And they exploit those channels repetitively um, with these stories. The fourth is they understand that customer experience happens in every interaction that a customer has with a brand. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's the reason why Warby Parker was hiring Ivy League graduates to be customer service reps in New York when they started. Um, you know, It's the reason why, as much as people talked about the internet, Something called wheat pasting is still a big thing in New York City and a bunch of other major cities where you're going to see these little billboards up on um, on wooden uh, um, on on wooden scaffolding all over the yep. city. They're great um, concerts you know, and everything. You see, yeah. you see, Ed still do it's it's analog because yeah. it works. Yeah, and and then the fifth is uh, rinse and repeat. Right, they find a rep a, a repeti- you know a repetition cycle um, that allows them to do this stuff uh, uh, in a smart, repetitive way. And so it's those five things. Um, and so when I'm looking at brands, I'm trying to figure out if they don't have that stuff yet, like, does it look like they'll get there? That is, that is some key learnings out there. That's a masterclass in itself for anyone out there. So 2014, um, you got funded by our mutual connection, Matt, Matt Higgins with RSC Ventures. Why, why did, why did you decide to raise? I didn't know I had to. No. So (laughs) (laughs) this is, is, yeah, this is sort of ironic because Maddie has the bird in the boats book. I believe I was a bit of a chicken shit, which is why I raised. Um, and I think it's important to point out that you don't I, like. I'm not. I love Maddie, but you don't have to necessarily jump off a tall building in order to start a company, right? Mm-hmm. I spent I ten years. I I, ten, I spent ten years honing my skill. I had the 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 iconic direct consumer brand fall into my lap. Um. I built an incredible relationship with them, but my God, they were like the most talented people alive. 
Um, I came up with an idea to start the company and knew they would be my first client. Um, and then I had Matt and Steve tell me that they would back the company, underwrite my salary for two years, um, give me office space and like help me actually set up things like pay all the stuff I had no idea how to do. Another back end. And then mm-hmm. I decided to start a company. <laughs> and it still took Matt I, probably two or three of those long walks around Flatiron. Oh. Um, to talk me into it. And, 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 and I should say, and I, I don't want to like, um, this isn't lightly, I don't want to say this lightly. Uh, my now wife who I was dating was the other person who was egging me on the whole time, Jordana. Um, um, she kept telling me to do it. I mean, you know, but for me, it was, it was a extraordinarily calculated risk that was de-risked. I love it. And, and I'm, I'm putting it out to the universe that within the next couple of years, I'm going to have a similar conversation with Matt. Uh, about what I'm building here. So I'm just putting that out into the universe on this show, episode <laughs> 269, recorded on April 21st, 2023. You, you, you nice. mentioned your wife for a second there, and I don't even have this as a note here, but I know as a, what I think I am a successful entrepreneur, business owner, that I wouldn't be anywhere without her. And and that is a key. Okay. And, and I'm sure she'll use this against me in our divorce hearings in a couple of years. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but like, let's talk about the importance of having a supportive spouse and partner. I mean, Matt even talks about in the book as being a cheat code. Oh, yeah. um, like, let's talk about the importance of that from a, like, let, let's hone in on that when it comes to hard, hard and difficult decisions to have that person as a sounding board. Yeah. Oh, man, I have so many thoughts about this. I, yeah, I let's think go there. that I think that way too many people spend less time being thoughtful about this than they do about like buying a big screen television. <laughs> they like they like date three, four, five people in their lives and they just choose a person and get married. I think you need to be extraordinarily intentional about this. Um, and I was extraordinarily intentional about it. I met tons and tons of people, um, you know, and I actively tried to meet as many people as possible to try to understand what it was I was looking for. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's sort of threefold, right? So one, like from a values perspective, you've got to share values with that person about like what family means and, and, and religion and all these kind of big picture uh, issues Two, like tactically speaking, you guys have to have alignment about like the basics of life. How many kids you want to have? Like, do you want to live in a city or in the suburbs? Like, it's stuff, yeah, it's like stuff you don't even think about, but each one of them is an enormous fight. And then third and most important, I think you have to have a lot of value alignment about what you want out of life in your career. Um, it doesn't mean that both of you have to have the same type of career or the same, like, but you both have to be supportive of what the other person wants. Um, like I, I know Matt talks about this with Sarah all the time. The way I feel with Jordana is like, she's a killer. Like I love her, like, because like she is one of the most ambitious people I know. Um, and you know, she puts her money where her mouth is. Um, she continues to learn. She's addicted to it and she wants to, she wants to build a kick ass career. Like I find that amazing. What did she do? Um, and she, um, she started Lola. <laughs> she started. Um, so she, she's a classically trained pianist who worked mm-hmm. in the fine arts after college, um, and um, uh, and then uh, went to business school at Columbia. Um, she founded um, a feminine reproductive health company called Lola. Um, she's raised sixty million dollars of venture funding. Um, they uh, they are available nationally in Walmart and a whole bunch of other retailers. She just recently fired herself and hired a professional CEO to scale the business the rest of the way. But that's such self-awareness to know that like I, yeah. I got to this company to a place. Now we need to bring in the big dogs who right? Yeah. We, we do that. I, yeah. I, I love and, and so she just stepped away. She's still sitting on the board. I think she's the chairwoman of the board. Um, and I think she's going to go back and work in the arts now. She wants to go back and do something back in the arts. And she's, she's a killer. She's amazing. What is it like to have two alpha-minded entrepreneurs in the same bedroom <laughs> like from a, we're, like, we're, we're also gemini's uh i oh i mean it's great it, like listen it, it's not perfect nothing's perfect but yeah. like uh, you know she's 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 she just took another job that hasn't been announced yet um and it's a big job and you know i'm so happy for her um because it fulfills an ambition that she has and a dream she has but it also drives me. I look at myself and I'm like, do I measure up now? I do the same um, thing. Yeah. And I don't mean it in a competitive set because I am just like literally 100% happy for her. Um, but I mean it in the sense of like, like I got I to gotta measure up. And, uh, and so I think both of us do that for each other um, in ways that are constructive and supportive. 
Um, I also think like given like the amount of communication that goes into marriage and into a relationship like that, and so we have two young kids and a dog and like all these other responsibilities, just like being really open and communicative. Yeah. Um, and honest with one another about how you're feeling about stuff. I think it's really, really, really important. You hit the nail on the head there. It's open and honest communication. And sometimes I dare I say this, sometimes uh, there's parts of the relationship you have to treat like a business as far as communication and organization, especially I got an 11 year old and almost five year old, like logistics and timing and scheduling. And and you need to be aligned with that. And we also have our share of responsibilities in the household. You know, I take care of finances, X, Y, Z. She takes care of social calendar for the kids, but you got to keep going on that. So I want to pivot for a moment. Let's talk about your, your own fund, sort of fund, uh, Amity Supply. Tell us a little bit more what Amity Supply is about, the, the thesis behind it, and what you guys are up to. Yeah, so, so when I started the business, I was an angel investor with very little capital. <laughs> and so I think I invested in five businesses. Um, I was lucky, right? It was Warby, Harry's, Everlane. Oscar, and then a Swedish business called Ticktail, which didn't work out. But I'll take four out of five. I was fine. Um, Pretty quickly ran out of capital. Um, And and actually, Michael Praisman from Everlane, I'm I'm going to his wedding next week, Um, back in 2013, uh, called me kind of early in our relationship. We had been helping them with positioning and like building out positioning for Everlane. Um, And he said to me that he wanted to offer uh, the firm some equity in the business. Um, and then he kindly taught me a lot about equity, um, and, and, you know, assigned me some reading and I uh, did a bunch of, I, once I get going, I, I'll just learn as much as I can about anything. And I, I had access to Matt and Uday and his whole team. Um, and so I, um, uh, I, we started to ask for equity in all the deals we did. Um, and so we started doing that in 2013. Um, and several years in, I went to Matt and, and then to Steve. Um, and I said, our equity seems to be performing. Like, I, you know, I, I think we're going to be in a good spot. You know, we had equity, um, in a lot of the companies that we just talked about. Um, and, uh, uh, and I wanted to raise some capital. Uh, and Steve, like he's always been as, you know, it was just extraordinarily generous and game and, and, and wanted to go for it. So we did it. And so I called it Amity Supply. It was a sort of an homage to my, my two grandfathers. Um, one owned a textile company and the other drove a, a home heating oil truck. Um, and, uh, and I took the, the two names of the companies they were at and, and mashed them together. Uh, but we started to write checks. The first it. check we wrote was, was into the seed and A rounds of, of HIMS Boom. way back in the day. Um, uh, and we've written about 55 checks since then, mostly consumer. But it goes back to this pattern and this thread of, of recognizing behaviors and patterns. And when we say bet on the the jockey, not the horse. What comes to mind? Yeah. I, so, I mean, a, a few things. So one, to your point about pattern recognition, I have the benefit of not looking, generally speaking, at one thing, but at looking at many. So we didn't just get to see hymns. We got to see hymns, keeps, Roman, all of them, right? And, you know, I don't know if Roman will end up a slightly bigger company than I don't really care. The, the point really was that I got to look at all of them and make it, uh, and, and get to understand two things. So one, that a bunch of people in venture who are probably smarter than me think this is a product category worth backing. <laughs> and two, now that I've seen all of them, I get to like sit around with some friends and think about who we think might win. Right. And the friends in that case were Thrive Capital and Jeff Rayner and uh, Andy Katz Mayfield at, at Harry's. And so we all decided to take a bet together on what became him. So I've gotten to do a version of that a lot, um, which is really, really partnering with smart people. So, yeah. Um, but- and then in terms of in terms of like when you say jockey, not whore, like like uh, you know the right founder is the right founder. Um, you know, dude, could have walked in with anything, and I would have done it. Like the the guy was incredible, and the way the work they had done to get to the point where they walked in the room in terms of beta testing and everything. They were beta testing under this brand name called Clubroom. Um, you can still find the Clubroom Instagram if you look at it for it. Um, but they, if I'm remembering right, and I might be off a little, they were acquiring customers on Facebook already um, to sell, I believe, Rogaine or whatever the OTC version of it was. They were buying the stuff off the shelf from uh, um, uh, from Costco, Just and they were actually, out. yeah, and so they had data <laughs> that showed us that the business was going to work from a math perspective. But like, same with like. Michael Praisman, like that dude, anything he wants to do, I'll do. I don't care what it is. Like, but what's that? What's a common trait? There isn't. That's the thing. I, 
Um, I mean, listen, there's an enormous amount of grit and determination. I guess there are common traits. Sorry. Enormous amount of grit and determination. Um, enormous uh, ability to absorb pain. I mean, I guess it's tied to grit, right? Um, but I do think it's slightly different. Um, three, just addiction to learning. Like always, always learning. Always. Um, and then four, like some level of interest in whatever they're doing that transcends economics. Like they would be doing it anyway, even if they were like sitting in a beach chair, you know? Um, I, I also listen to it. When you talk about founding groups, I like multi-founder teams more than I like single founder teams. Why? That's interesting. Well, you don't see like hive I, mindset. I mean, or do you like the dynamic with the yin and yang where they're bouncing off each other? Because I've I read yeah, a lot of times like I, being, you don't need a co-founder. Like some people feel they need one. I do. I think it might be helpful for lots of people when it comes to like their mental health. Um, you know, I, uh, I technically founded Daris alone, but my, my partner, Lisa has been here since the first day and his partner in the business, I couldn't have built the business without her. Um, you know, uh, I, I think it's really, really hard to build a business by yourself, um, for two reasons. So one, I think if you don't have that work partner, um, you do end up bringing more of it home. Like you, ha- you have less of that catharsis in being able to talk to somebody and own it. Now I always had Matt to fall back on, but I also have had Lisa. Um, you know, I, I, and that's one. And two, it's extremely rare that you find left and right brained individuals. So it might be the case that like for a product oriented business, like a technical product oriented business, you can just have one founder and that person can just build the very best product. And since it's zero marginal cost, who cares? Blah, blah, blah. Um, but for a brand that's going to try to sell a physical good or a service to another human, I think multi-founder is great. I think you need to have somebody who sort of understands like the intersection of product, brand, and marketing and like cares about iterative storytelling. Smart. And you have to have another person who like understands how to do math <laughs> and you, cares deeply about math and operations. Right, because you don't have all those skills, right? And it's about it's about complementary skills. So I want to bring everyone up to speed here. At the end of last year, uh, uh, Berlin Rosen bought a, a majority stake in, in Deris. Um, is that a... Was that a, a, a what was the need behind that, or was it just an opportunity you couldn't say no to? There was no need. I um, I spent a lot of time talking to Matt about this, and a lot of my other friends, um, Risa Heller, who's one of my oldest, closest friends from from uh, from work, is actually the person who reintroduced me to Jonathan Rosen. Um, I, I was trying to figure out a way not to be running uh, um, the operations of a service business into my forties. You know, uh, there are certain things that I'm good at that involve the work. And there are certain things that I don't get a ton of thrill out of. Um, you know, I don't get a ton of thrill out of sitting in a recruiting meeting every week, um, you know, or, you know, like managing cash flows or like all the HR decisions that go into these things. I just don't find that stuff fun. Um, I want to spend time with founders. I want to spend time on our work. I want to be doing new business and making investments. Um, and I was finding that more and more of my time, the larger we got, was being spent on things that I didn't want to spend time on. And so there's different options available to you, right? You can raise capital, you can hire a COO, you can settle a big holding company. Um, I was open to all of it. When I met Jonathan and then Valerie uh, uh, Berlin, uh, uh, I had known them from years and years and years ago. I've actually met them when I was at Sunshine when they were starting their firm. Um, so the first thing is that they're great human beings. And so I thought I could work with them. That's important. Um, yeah. And uh, uh, the second thing was they like understood the value of what we had built and wanted to respect it and keep it. Um, and, and the third um, was they had built the best operations setup I had ever seen in our business, including all of the publicly traded holding companies. Um, and I knew that if we plugged our sort of operating system into their operations... Um, that it would be a very, very good combination. I mean, that was that was the primary consideration. And it's taking away the the elements that you mentioned before that you don't generally enjoy doing from an operations standpoint, yeah. right? Like, so you're, you're doing that. And what's that relationship look like now? It's amazing. Um, you know, I, I've grown up working with VCs and like working much more in VC and hadn't really realized anything about the private equity world. Our, our backers are a firm called O2 in, in Michigan. Um, and they've been incredible partners. Um, uh, and, uh, and working with Jonathan and Val and their whole team, um, Andy and David and their whole crew, um, 
I have learned more in the last year than I learned, I feel like, in the previous five or six. You always you be know, learning. You know, and it's obviously about the way private equity works and about how these roll-ups work and all the M&A we've gotten to do over the last several years, but also just learning from them about how they run their business. Um, you know, that point about not having like a, like a, like having another group there to like talk to, I think has been super helpful for both me, me and Lisa. And I think for them, I think they've learned a lot from us. Um, but it's been so, um, I don't know, like value accretive to my brain. I don't know how else to put it. No, that's, that's, um, that's tremendous. I mean, you're, you're hitting the nail on the head. And, and, and I always say this, like this show is my masterclass. I mean, I've, I've gotten to have a 44 minute conversation with you, somebody that I've only read about. And I'm like, Matt, I need to, I need to get Jesse on the show. And I hope everyone listening is, is getting the lessons here. What's your, what's your hot take? Let's, let's, let's switch gears for a little bit as we, we get close to, to the end here. Um, how in tune are you with, with, with staying abreast of, of technology? I mean, what's your thoughts on, on web three? What are you getting involved with there? What's your, what's your hot take? Is this, is this hype? Are we getting, you know, the, I, I mean, I personally believe the, the NFT situation has given this whole quote unquote web three, the worst PR ever with the rug pulls yeah. and the scams versus taking a step back and like, let's understand the technology behind it, the good for it. And guess what? All this shit's going on the blockchain, whether you like it or not. Yeah. So uh, sorry, my little rant there. I, no, get rant, I get to rant a little bit on my show. It's a conversation I've had a lot. I think extraordinarily novel technology. Um, the first thing that happens when there's a novel technology is somebody tries to figure out how to print money on it, <laughs> right? <laughs> and own the money. Because like, yeah, that's the way community works. Um, but the idea, and it's funny, I was talking to Higgins about this this morning. The idea of the blockchain, of like a non-custodial like a relationship to be able to transfer goods, services, anything else like that will be here forever. I think as the energy um, considerations mm -hmm. hopefully become less of a thing as time comes, like the stuff I'm most excited about are the infrastructure plays um, and how it might impact infrastructure. Um, you know, and there's a million ideas. I think we're at the very, very beginning of the productizing of this. Um, and you know, I, I don't know whether it's like the, the catch and capture of solar and credit there, whether it's in, we're working with a, a, a telephone company that's starting in Austin, Texas called really, um, which wants to build a telephone carrier based on, on, uh, on web three protocols. Um, you know, I don't care what it is, but I do believe that like taking the, the, the kind of central kind of third party corporation out of custodial relationships and transactions is a valuable thing, obviously. Um, Democratization. Yeah. I mean, it's transformative. Yeah. What, what's like, what's the most exciting thing that you've seen aside from the, uh, the telco going to the blockchain? Like what's something that blew your mind recently? Like, holy shit. I mean, I've, do that. I've definitely, it's definitely less web three than the AI stuff is really like, um, and the chat scary. GPT stuff. Does but that scare I, you? I Does that scare you no. as someone who's in the communications? Like no, the fact that we can I, manipulate like, the agenda even more with these deep fakes and, you know, just so easy to manipulate the story to what you want it to be? Or is that same old, I same guess. old, just different, different I think it's tools? Just, it's funny. Not, it's funny, scary, whatever you want to call it. Like, there's a lot of ways to look at this. I think the last 20 years have been about the elimination of friction and the increase in speed and communication, mm -hmm. right? And so I started my career kind of cold calling reporters and blast faxing people and like all this stuff. You know, and, and now I have a computer in my pocket that's more powerful than the first mm -hmm. rocket to the moon, right? And like, and the change, the big change has been the speed. Um, and so the speed between communications individually and collectively and all sorts of other stuff, even the bank run is that, like in the last several months. The next 20 years, I'm not going to pretend I have any idea what they're going to be about, but it feels like they're going to be about the balance between human and machine um, uh, 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 work. Um, and, uh, uh, and the elimination of like tactical human work. Right. And I don't know what that means. Like, you know, again, uh, you know, talking to somebody this morning, I don't even mind sitting on the sidelines as people invest in all this stuff right now. Um, uh, I think even if you wait two years and just look, you're still going to be so early. Like, <laughs> And I don't know what's going to happen. I suspect, you know, we create a society of people who are focused uh, more on strategic questions rather than tactical ones, that that's a net benefit. Agreed. Um, but let's, let's see. <clears throat> I love it. So let's, let's bring it home here. And I ask every guest this question. What is the single greatest piece of advice that you've received that you take action on daily? When you wake up in the morning, when you, when you flip into, you know, work mode from home mode, 
Like what, what is that mantra? What is that something you repeat in your head daily to get you locked in and going? Only thing you can't buy more of is time. Like you need to be dead focused on how you use your time. Um, and you need to treat it like it's money. Like, and, <laughs> but money you can't earn more of. It's literally impossible. Um, and so, I, you know, my business partner knows this. A lot of people who know me well, my wife knows this. I reconsider my use of time like almost quarterly, like down to like going through my schedule and rechopping it up. Um, both so I'm using my time in the office well and also so that I can be home and be around my kids. Um, and I, I think the like careful consideration and reconsideration of time is the most important thing in the entire world. Well, Jesse, I want to thank you for carving out an, almost an hour of your time to spend with me and my audience because <laughs> I know how valuable it is. So let's, let's bring it home here. You, you look back on, on your life and your career and you look at those hard times when you had to dig down deep and harness that inner tenacity to drive you up when you were at the bottom of that well. And now you're sitting here, gratitude for the life, the family, the businesses that you've built, the success that you've had. What keeps you focused? What is your beacon? Jesse Darris, what is your North Star in life? Learning. Um, learning and growing all day long. Um, never don't have a book I'm reading. Um, never don't want to learn something random about the world that I think is fascinating. Um, I think like the bulwark of human achievement is like a continual path of growth and learning. Um, and if I feel like that path has stopped, I change the path um, is the honest truth. I love it. And thank you for being honest and open and sharing so much of your knowledge and wisdom with me and my audience today. I hope everyone out here really takes a moment to think about just digest. There was a lot going on here. We, we went in a lot of different places. We went right. We went left. We went center. We went all over the place. Jesse, I want to thank you so much for your time. I look forward to continuing and building a relationship with you and getting to know you. I'm in New York City. I'm out in Long Island. Um, I told Higgins I'm crashing his Hamptons house, whether he likes it or not this summer. He said, I'm sicking the guard dogs on you. They're going to be trained to shoot. This is going to be a situation. <laughs> I like no, that. We're not, we're not, we're not going to do that. But Jesse, where could folks find you? Where could they connect with you? Where could they learn more? Uh, I'm still at my company, uh, uh, Daris. Um, and so fun fact, if you go on to Daris.com, D-E-R-R-I-S.com, and you email that info at Daris address, I'll see it. You're still getting the info emails. I love it. <laughs> well, that's what, that's what keeps you in tune with the people listening and, and reading yeah. that. I always say to Bill Gates, like who gets the, like when he started, like maybe he never just changed the email address like you. It's like, hey. It's where they're still going. And I'm looking, Bill Gates is looking at them on the crapper in the morning, right? Like he's like, that's his, that's his customer service. You You'd know? be surprised. Yeah. We're all humans, right? We're all humans. But Jesse, I want to thank you so much. Everyone listening, I thank want to thank you. you for spending the last 50 minutes and 57 seconds with, with Jesse and I. This has been another great episode. Remember, sharing means caring. If you like this episode, leave a review rating. It goes a long way. You know where to find out more at thepodcast.com. Follow us on all the social media channels. Remember, take care of each other. Look out for one another and catch us next week for another great episode of the podcast. Take care, everybody. Wisdom is forever, but for us, it's time to go. Thank you for joining us. Luckily, we'll be back with our next episode soon, jam-packed with more incredible humans. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and sharing. To join the conversation, search the podcast on LinkedIn. And to catch up on past episodes and more info, please visit www.thepausecast.com. <laughs>